fellow Marvelites, you're listening to Marvel's pull list for comics, many of them new, on sale August 5th, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, how are you? I'm doing good. I had the recent revelation that in about a week or so, we're going to have been in quarantine for five months. Get out. Doesn't that feel crazy? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is um, that is a little mind-boggling. I know, <laughs> to, yeah. to say the least. Uh, all right. So in these five months, what have you learned? <laughs> oh man, what have I learned? I've learned probably that I'm too comfortable staying inside for too long. I've gone outside beyond taking the trash out one time in the last two months, and it was for a walk. <laughs> At 11 p.m. for like a half hour, um, so but like I'm doing fine. That's that's the that's the issue. That's the weird part of it is that like I feel totally okay. Well, your body needs vitamin D, so you need yeah. more sunlight. Also, you are pasty white, so a oh, little sunlight. Yes, that's absolutely true. Couldn't hurt. Uh, I, I I I love a lot of the things about the situation we're in, like spending as yeah. much time as I do with my wife and my daughter and like well, seeing my yeah, daughter. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Like being around when she's this age is incredible. Yeah. She just turned 10 months. So this is like, I've been able to be here as her personality has been developing every day yeah. as opposed yeah. to spending 12, 10 to 12 hours out of the house, which is no way to live. I mean, right. you know, it's a, there's a lot of terrible stuff, but I... It's been great. We went for a walk this morning, the three of us, and we just had a great time. And she pets trees and we like look at the birds and, you know, and then I get dressed and it's still the same time it would be for me to be in the office. Right, right. It's like I just don't have to spend an hour commuting. It's 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 been even funny because maybe about once per record, your wonderful daughter will make an appearance in in our video chat and it's it's that funny thing of seeing like i feel like even i can kind of see the progression from like worm state to like oh like you have a little brain and like you can see like even the last time that we recorded i saw her like sitting on your lap there and she's just kind of sitting and smiling looking around and you're like a little nuzzle on her head or something she'll look up and smile and it's just like oh wow like look you can kind of even see these little subtle changes of like this person becoming a person it's awesome It's going to be wild. Soon enough, she'll be hosting the show with us and it'll be something crazy, Um, which leads us to getting to the point of the show, which is to talk about the new comics that we are releasing this week. Uh, Plus, we are going to have an amazing guest. Uh, We have Javier Garon joining us, uh, artist on currently on Avengers, um, but we dig into... A lot of stuff. Our reading club is with him this week, is with Javier to talk about Clandestine. But uh, as we get through the piece, Tucker, you lead us into turning it into like four reading clubs. And it's fantastic. <laughs> it really, really is. It, it, you know, it's funny. And I only realized afterwards that I realized a c- couple of things. Maybe I'll, we'll touch on this again after we, we send it to the reading club and come back. But this is two weeks in a row. We're going to 1994. Which is just a fun little note. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you at that point? One? Zero? Uh, I was like one and a half. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was I was a man of 13 at that point. <laughs> um, all right. But let's talk about comics for 2020. The first of which, Tucker, set it off. 
All right, let's do this. We're starting this week with Black Cat number 12. It's written by fan favorite Jed McKay with art by C.F. Via, uh, colors by Brian Reber, and letters by Ferran Delgado. Um, I can finally talk about what went down at the end of the previous issue, which was just so cool, so much fun, and and really like so, for me, like a prototypical kind of Jed McKay choice. And by that, I mean, it's just delightful. It's somehow at the same time, totally unexpected. It's a roller coaster, um, but it's something you've always wanted to see, but never knew you wanted to see it. So we we saw Felicia Hardy kind of infiltrate Stark Industries. She's going on a mission. She's going to talk to Tony. They run into each other, yada, yada. Um, and then kind of the final page, we see a kind of uh, black hat slash like Iron Man mech suit hybrid thing hero going on and that's what we're digging into fully in this issue it is so much fun it's black hat like in a super suit throwing down with iron man throwing down with kind of his corner of uh the world oh man it is just so much fun and honestly it's it's you know i think this book keeps going strength to strength it's so so impressive yeah i I believe this is the end of this part of the run um, because at the end it says returns, you know, Black Cat returns and King and Black. But man, this as a 12 issue sort of slice of the potential for what a Black Cat book can be and is, is fantastic. What a great, great run. Unfortunately, we're going to be saying that a couple of times this week, uh, but not right now because we are talking about Captain America number 21 by ta Coates and Bob Quinn, colors by Matt Mila and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. Um, the, at the center of this is this like cool, creepy middle America horror story that I really, really dig. And, you know, my wife and I were looking for houses. We're going, we're visiting various different towns and places around New York, uh, a little bit further away from New York City. And like the way Bob draws this little town reminds me of the towns we've driven through and walked through. And like, oh, it's, this is America. There's nightmare, you know, evil energy vampire women at the center of every town I drive through. <laughs> it's all Celine. Ah, I gotta run. Um, which is disturbing. But uh, on top of that, we've got freaking, uh, you know, Lucan, who's return and, um, by the end of the issue, it is like, oh, like you see all of ta plans for Lucan starting to come up and you've got all the other things. It's uh, obviously ta Coates is a brilliant writer, but the way he's sort of been bringing these threads together and up at the same time and they're all sort of happening. You got the, the Daughters of Liberty and everything else. It's it's really cool. Totally. Um, next up, coming after Cap, we have Deadpool with Deadpool number six. It is written by Kelly Thompson with art by Kevin Labranda, colors by Chris Sotomayor, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. This is an issue in particular that Kelly Thompson has been super excited for fans to read because uh, we have uh, the king of Monster Island, um, uh, FKA Staten Island, uh, and he is finally going as his own emissary over to Krakoa. Um, the way he does it is so fun. 
Uh, it is so Deadpool. And then what goes down there is kind of, I think, explores like every single quick hit angle of like what you want to see given the current status quo of everything going on in the world of the X-Men, the world of Krakoa, um, and uh, the energy that Deadpool brings into that. It's so delightful. I think it's just great given like Deadpool's history with the X-Men. There was a tweet that went kind of, I think, pretty viral this week where someone discovered a like specific species of shark that was like, oh my God, I've never seen this kind of shark before. Don't know what it's called, but it looks literally exactly like Jeff. It looks exactly like Jeff the land shark. People were tweeting at Kelly Thompson like crazy saying, oh my God, Jeff is real. Go check it out. If you go on Kelly Thompson's Twitter, um, uh, you'll be able to find it because she retweeted and, and was talking about it. But I was equally blown away and it's perfect timing because there are some awesome just like perfectly Jeff moments in, in uh, this issue. Shout out to Kevin LaBranda for executing those wonderfully in like the perfect Jeff way. Uh, this is such a fun issue and it really does. Oh my God, the shark. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I told you. <laughs> yeah. What is happening? Put little feet on the shark and it is Jeff. It's that crazy. Nutso. <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. That's yeah. a species of mini great white sharks called salmon sharks. Salmon. There it is. What? <laughs> anyway, perfect play. timing. Great issue. Great issue in general. Loved it. Another book that is also really good and sadly, as I mentioned before, is ending is Doctor Strange Surgeon Supreme number six. Storytellers on this are Mark Wade and Kev Walker. Colors by Java Tartaglia and letters by BC's Corey Pettit. It's the it's, it's the end of the six issue run. It's also the end of Mark Wade's run. And so, you know, you've got the space stuff and all the cool things that he did developing uh, Doctor Strange. And you think about the mark that, no pun intended, the like the stamp that Mark Wade puts on Doctor Strange in these two years, you know, give or take, mm-hmm. um, from giving him a magical forge and the weapons to the stuff with his hands to making him a doctor again to, you know, sort of developing a whole bunch of just new characters and and nemeses and all this stuff. That is proof uh, once again of how impactful Mark Waite is when he gets to write uh, a run and a character. We will actually talk about Mark a little later with Javier. Um, They had a a run together, Um, but Man, it's I loved this run all told, especially these last six issues with Kev Walker because Kev Walker is pound for pound one of my favorite, favorite artists. I know we've talked about him a lot, but he gets to just do some really cool stuff. He is, you know, he's a I believe he's a British artist and he brings that 2000 AD sort of dense, gritty British style in all the best ways to his work, um, whether it was Star Wars or here in Doctor Strange. And here, um, there's a lot of really fun stuff with Madame Mask that we get, like getting inside Madame Mask literally and figuratively inside her head. Uh, It's great, 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 great run. It's going to be a wonderful sort of just like pull it off the bookshelf, read Mm -hmm. it, feel like you've, you know, you get to dive into a really cool chapter of uh, of a great, great book. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, coming up next now, we have Empire Number 4, uh, which has a story, of course, by Al Ewing and Dan Slott with a script 
on this one by Al. Uh, the art is by Valerio Schiti. The colors are by Marte Gracia. Letters are by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is probably one of my favorite uh, Empire or Empire, you know, even tie-in issues so far. And the reason for that is because we get into some real weird stuff in here, and I love it. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with the scrolls, and I think specifically when you're dealing with a scroll story told by creators like Al and Dan, creators who have not just a command of like the history of the Marvel Universe, of the history of this species uh, kind of in, you know, and, and their place in the history of the Marvel Universe, but such a reverence and um, who are so, you know, willing to to delight in that reverence. Um, that's something that we get in here in you know such a great way. It's really, really cool to see the balancing act going on in general because we do have a lot of fronts going on here. We have everything going on with the Avengers. We have stuff going on with the Fantastic Four. Of course, we have so much emotion and so much character work going on with Hulkling and stuff going on with Wiccan. Uh, some really exciting um, you know, uh, stuff going on there in particular. Then you have stuff with, say, Captain Marvel, which is so exciting and so great. We read um, uh, the Captain Marvel issue uh, last week, which uh, got into her role as the Accuser, which is awesome, plays a great role in here. Uh, there's just so many different things going on in this book, but somehow I think it, it's, it you know, you get to uh, feel the weight of everything. The rhythm of it all is so well done. It's so well executed. Um, uh, and you're somehow able to kind of absorb it all, despite the fact that so much is going on. And that's exactly what you want with a major event issue like this. You want there to be a ton of action. You want there to be a ton of uh, of different beats hitting you all at the same time. Um, uh, a bunch of weird, wacky stuff. Stuff that I think... Uh, Valerio Skidi just executes brilliantly, where he just captures this either sense of scale and action or sense of unease and weirdness at times. It's it's a really, really incredible piece of work from him. Great stuff coming from Jen Walters from She-Hulk. There is some really, really exciting stuff on that front. We get to dig into that a little bit here. Um, a really, really fun issue. And in the uh, back matter, we get some really cool character design work from uh, Valerio that we get to dig into and see the bit of the process. Did you mention the Wiccan Hulkling thing just in passing? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's it's much more than a just in passing sure level but, thing yes but like i we don't want to spoil nothing but exactly uh for everybody we know fans get hyped about wicked and hulkling and this is hype 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 worthy yes um, uh, we have more Empire to talk about, including, uh, real quick, the Empire Handbook, which, uh, for anybody who doesn't understand what a handbook is, it's like Wikipedia, but it's actually full of official and canon information. It's not some rando posting on uh, on Wikipedia and, like, <laughs> hoping that a mod lets them keep it. Um, and it's it's great that you got profiles on the Avengers, the Blue Area of the Moon, the FF, Kotati, Hulkling, and more. So, um if you are someone who just likes to dig into that kind of information and want it officially, then that's a book for you. Uh, all right, more official Empire stuff with Empire X-Men number two, written by Jerry Duggan, Ben Percy, and Leah Williams, which, come on, look at Whoa. that team. Yeah, right? Uh, art by Lucas Wernick, colors by Nolan Woodard, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This book is just bonkers. It is just, like... I, I know Jerry is a nut job and I love him dearly. Um, and Ben is uh, terrifying. And Leah is 
brilliant and encyclopedic in all of her knowledge. So you put all of that together and you get this kind of book. And it is wild. You've got horticulture, which are the uh, the octogenarian ladies who um, are all these brilliant like scientists who want to have messed with the X-Men of late. You have the Kotati, the, the villains of the Empire story, the one of the villains. Um, you have zombie mutants and you have X-Men. And it's just like this big melting pot of WTF, what's going to happen from one scene to another. Uh, there, There's a Black Tom thing that mm. happens in this book. And it's so weird and <laughs> funny and perfect uh Mm -hmm. this book the x-men empire connections have kind of been my favorite thing uh because you had the x like the proper x-men issues the one we just talked about a week or two ago with vulcan and then this like alien plants versus mutant zombies story it's just perfect i loved this issue and it was one of those moments where i read the issue was like that was so good i was like oh wait wait, hold on who wrote this who, who was the art in this? I went back and saw those three names as the writers, and I was like, oh, get out of here. Just yep. get out. Of course it was like three of the best in the biz all come together. Somehow they did it. Incredible. Um, uh, okay, that's what we have for uh, that side of the Empire business. Now we're going to an entire other angle of everything going on with Empire with Fantastic Four number 22. It's written by Dan Slott with art by Paco Medina and Sean Isaacs. Colors by Marcio Meniz and Jesus Abertov and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This digs into, it's a, it's a unique angle on the Fantastic Four history, uh, which I really love, which is essentially just like Fantastic Four team-ups because this issue is not really the kind of Fantastic Four series uh, as we've known it so far. Of course it's not, it's an Empire tie-in. And because of that, we have a ton of, of uh of guest characters in this book and that is always just so much fun i don't know what it is you know you could just switch the title out on you know this and just call it by a different name but the mere fact that it says fantastic four on the cover and then you get the characters that you get to see in here i'm talking spidey i'm talking wolverine i'm talking a few others that maybe i don't want to mention and also look i need to say it out loud get a little bit of dance lot spider-man I'm never going to complain about that. Uh, it is uh, really, really delightful stuff. Uh, we get like this perfect blend of everything going on in the realm of Empire um, and then everything going on with Val Franklin, the rest of the FF, uh, and then where we spin out of this and where I think we're going in the next few issues, at least in Fantastic Four, is uh, just so exciting and, and just pure fun. We got some more X-Men stuff here with Giant Size X-Men Phantom X number one. This is uh, written by Jonathan Hickman, uh, story and art by Rod Reese, and letters by VCs Ariana Meyer. Uh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Another, I these Giant Size X-Men books. I can't get enough of them. It's, uh, if you don't know, uh, Giant Size X-Men, we've done a bunch of them. They are basically Jonathan Hickman looking at an artist saying, I want to do an X-Men book with you. What's the story you like to do? What characters you want to do? Let's craft it from there. And it fits in with Jonathan's larger framework of what he's planning with all his X-Men stuff. And you get a, you know, you get amazing creative talents, let loose and do wild stuff. And we've been talking about Rod for a couple of years now. 
and how he has this really cool style. It, this one, you know, has elements that remind me of Phil Noto, of Bill Sienkiewicz, of a lot of just Rod's own stuff. And then you add that to the weirdness that is Phantom X, and it's wild. In this book, they introduce uh, a team I wish we saw more of called the Humongonauts, including Red Eye, Emotopool, Rustbot, and Mohawk Person. I want more of them. I want just one more story with them. Someone give that to me. I friggin' love this. This is a beautiful, a sad, really cool story. Um, and then right at the end, Storm says something and everything for me just like took a turn. And it was like the world shifts. And we talked to Russell and Russell is doing that Storm issue of Giant Size X-Men with Jonathan. So I can't wait. I yeah. can't wait. Uh, I have some Russell Dodderman thoughts about uh, the next issue uh, that we're covering this week, which is Guardians of the Galaxy number five. I'll get into that Russell stuff uh, in a sec. This issue, though, is written by Al Ewing with art by Juan Cabal, colors by Federico Blee, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. For those uh, Marvelites who are fans of Moondragon, your time has come. This issue takes place in, around, inside, in the history of, uh, bouncing back and forth between the moon dragons of a couple of different universes. And the way that Juan visualizes all of that, the way that we manage to jump between time, between place, you know, it's nothing short of incredible. And at the same time, we're progressing forward with these two Guardians of the Galaxy teams, because Star-Lord has died, the team split up into two, which I just think on that pure level is so exciting, so fun, and really a perfect choice for this book in particular. I mentioned Russell Dodderman earlier because he, in our chat last week, mentioned that he likes to use circles as a kind of means of communicating like calm or ease or like something that is like relaxing to the mind. There are a ton of circles at use in this issue and i would argue none of them are putting you at ease or making you feel calm or anything like that and that just speaks to uh you know how these different artists do different things it's so incredible where we finish this story is really really unique really cool i think um you know is a threshold moment certainly for one or two characters and definitely for this book uh and uh sets up some new status quo things like that it's really really cool um and i think is is the perfect kind of psychedelic fun you know strange guardians of the galaxy book that uh that uh, i'm always ordering heck yeah all right let's get back to empire for a minute with lords of empire celestial messiah number one written by alex pacnadel art by alex Linz, colors by matt yaki and letters by vcs ariana mar uh you know this is kind of everything you ever wanted to know about the celestial messiah it covers your classic mantis and swordsman stuff uh gets into the motivations lots of planty bits um it's really focused on koi who uh, is the Celestial Messiah, the big leader of the, the Kotadi, and why he's doing what he's doing, how his mother, Mantis, is involved in trying to stop him. And it, it really is like sort of painting the picture of giving you the background of 
the big bad guy. Totally. Um, now we're shunting ourselves to a completely different universe. Next up with Star Wars number five. It's written by the great Charles Soule with art by the great Jesus Saiz, colors by Arif Brianto and Dan Brown, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Um, what a creative team that is. And the way they pull everything off is totally living up to the expectations I've always had uh, for this book, for this series. Of course, we're digging into post-Empire Strikes Back material, that new kind of landscape as these characters explore um, it, literally, and explore themselves, most importantly. This is a Luke-focused issue um, that uh, follows Luke on a journey, kind of in parallel with following Darth Vader on a journey. It's really, really cool. What I really loved about this is it captures that sense of, like, um, the scene in Empire, as John Williams would call it, about the magic tree um, or J Luke's journey into the cave. Uh, it's a kind of a similar vibe to that of Luke kind of journeying through the darkness, trying to find himself, trying to uh, resolve the conflict within him, trying to reach for something. And he's on this pathway, but there's something eerie. There's something strange about him all the time. Uh, it's really, really great. You know, I, 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 I feel like I could re read... Uh, a book that this creative team puts together where it's just like three characters trapped in a small room for 20 pages and they don't leave the room and that's the whole thing and i would love it it's great yeah it really is terrific all right last book of the week is strike force number nine written by teeny howard art by herman peralta colors by guru efx and letters by vcs joe sabino and unfortunately this is one more final issue this week this is the end of strike force for the moment uh but does wrap up everything very very well it gets to strike force and the avengers it gets to um what strike force was trying to do with um with the verandi and and everything that's been going on uh there's a cool secret monster island fight club type of thing that is established in here uh the thing that i've i've realized in the last couple of issues of this is i freaking love the way teeny writes deadpool um i also love the way kelly writes deadpool so i feel like we need a second deadpool book this one <laughs> written by teeny so uh, i would like that to happen please wade wilson you. the spectacular deadpool man <laughs> that's perfect we have multiple spidey books why not yeah of course <laughs> um it's it's great this uh this is just a good wrap-up to the book again another nine issues that'll fit nicely together as one story uh one cool thing about all this is just getting to see herman peralta really let loose and i can't wait to see his maestro pages because he's gonna he's got just something special about him especially when it's colored by guru fx um man it's gonna be gonna be great yeah, totally. Now, moving on to collections this week, we have Captain Marvel Volume 3, The Last Avenger, Conan, the Barbarian Epic Collection, The Original Marvel Years, The Coming of Conan, Morbius Volume 1, Oz, The Complete Collection, Oz, Dorothy, and The Wizard, Savage Avengers Volume 2, To Dine with Doom, and Thor by Jason Aaron Volume 4. Uh, in addition, of course, we have new books hitting Marvel Unlimited this week. Uh, you've got Hawkeye Freefall coming in there, Immortal Hulk, uh, issue of Ravencroft to set you up on that, more Dawn of X with X-Force, X-Men, New Mutants, uh, Deadpool The End, and Doctor Strange The End, uh, and Captain Marvel The End. All three of them this week? 
hot dang this is a good week for marvel unlimited um and of course marvel limited should be very helpful for you to catch up with us as we talk about our reading club choice for this week which is clandestine the original eight issues from the 1994 limited series and to do that of course we have mr javier garon to join us uh he chose it we're going to get into that we're going to get into his career uh you can read ant-man cyclops star lord there's there's plenty out there his work is beautiful and uh i think you can audibly hear him blush as we go through <laughs> and talk about some of his work as we get into this chat with mr javier garon Javier, welcome to the show. So excited to have you on. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm extremely excited to be here talking with you guys today. We've been talking a little bit before we started rolling here. Javier, it must be said, you may be the most prepared uh, uh, guest on Marvel's pull list of all time. I'm so excited. And and I got to be honest, this fits perfect. <laughs> this fits perfectly into so much of what I was thinking about about you before uh, we jumped in today. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to, to chat. Yeah, you're more prepared than Tom Brevoort uh, was for any of his like four appearances on the show. That said, Tom's memory is better than all of ours combined. So yeah. it sort of evens out. <laughs> yeah, that, my memory is completely disastrous. That's why I have to prepare so much, knowing in advance that I was going to talk about this. I was like really nervous and just taking notes and preparing. So hope it sounds yeah. out. Um, so we're going to get into, of course, we're talking about Clandestine, um, the original eight-issue run by Alan Davis. We'll get into that in a bit. Um, but first, you know, we wanted to get to know you a little bit more, Javier, because um, we haven't had you on this show before. You were on This Week in Marvel with me a while ago. But um, who were your biggest artistic influences? Oh, well, um, definitely, I have to say, one of my first main artistic references and influences was um, a Spanish artist called uh, Carlos Pacheco, uh, uh, who is working, has been working for Marvel for, I don't know, um, two decades, almost three decades now. He started working for Marvel UK, and then he jumped when Marvel UK closed offices. He jumped alongside other Spanish artists to the main Marvel, main US Marvel, and that um, Carlos Pacheco is from the same region as I'm from in Spain, from the very south of Spain, a region called Cadiz. We are not from the same town, but it's like one hour away driving by car. And um, I first knew about him and I was kind of like struck by a lightning by his heart. It was just amazing. I was, I, I couldn't believe that a person living so close to where I lived, which was like, the, the farthest corner of the earth. <laughs> I, I didn't even fathom that a person that lived one hour away by car from me could 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 end up working for marble and could end up drawing like that. I don't know. I I kind of assumed that you had to be from a, a bigger city or have some kind of artistic background or some kind of a studies. And it turns out that Carlos Pacheco he studied biology. He's not. He didn't really study art. So uh, I kind of uh, started following his art. I remember 
he just was starting working for Marvel US. He did a miniseries called uh, Bishop, the Mountjoy Mountain Crisis, I think it was in English. And that was completely mind blowing. Then the, the action was, um, was jaw breaking. You could even read the comic without reading the actual words and understand what was going on. That's the magic of storytelling. And I think that that has stayed with me throughout the years. No matter the changes that Carlos Pacheco has done in his art, on, and no matter how different my art is from his, I still feel that influence in my art, the way he, he sets, up, sets up a page, the way he choreographs the action. That has stayed with me. And aside from, aside from, from Carlos Pacheco, I'd have to say, for example, George Perez, I remember being completely also blown away when I read the, the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, the, the size, the scope, the epicness. There you go. I'm wearing an Infinity Gauntlet t-shirt. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's plain perfect. It's, I don't know, the, the, I've always been drawn to epic events. You know, when, 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 a, when an event is, it's rightfully done, it's correctly crafted, the epic scale, the, the emotions involved, the sense of danger, the, the things that are at stake uh, really, really kind of resonate with me. Kind of, I, I feel myself very moved by everything that was going on in, that, in, the, in the Infinity Gauntlet. The size and the scope, the number of characters, I don't know, it was the detailing of, of everything from the city itself. Uh, all the landscapes, the palaces, the, the palace of Thanos with death all the cities being crushed, all the people disappearing and all the people left behind. You could see in their faces the pain and the grief and all the heroes struggling to, to go through all that crisis. I don't know. It's, it's a kind of magic that also stood with me. So I, I'll say George Perez, Carlos Pacheco, and probably Stuart Immonen. Oh my gosh. Yes, yeah, Stuart Immonen. Yes. I mean, uh, the way Immonen has evolved. He started as something more plastic, then he turned to something more photorealistic, then turned into something more cartoonish, and then became the most spectacular, expressive thing ever. His all new X-Men are explosive. His, um, his Spider-Man run with Dan Slott is absolutely breathtaking. And in every single of the stages his art has gone through, he has been the best. Yeah. And he has been, he has worked a lot. You have a lot of comics drawn by him. He has leaving behind him an enormous, awe-inspiring trail of comics. And that is something really inspiring to be able to, to achieve the level where you can produce so much art at that level. It's, it's an inspiration too. So I think, I think I will say with those three, Carlos Pacheco, George Perez, and Stuart Immonen. Those are three incredible artists. Tucker, you and I have talked about Stuart many times before on the show, mm -hmm. talking about how he's an artist artist, you know, like Javier, you just proved it to us. He's like any, almost every artist that I know will reference Stuart's work at some point or another. And it is incredible. He and George have drawn some of my favorite work for the distinguished competition. There's a Superman secret identity story 
that Stewart did that he drew that is hands down one of my favorite comics of all time. And then all the stuff you talked about for us, man. Oof, oof, good comics. <laughs> uh, Javier, you know, it, can you talk a little bit about growing up in Spain, about reading comics there and about how your journey began um, from just being a, a lover of comics to being a professional? Yeah, of course. Here's the thing. Superheroes, I think they are beloved everywhere in the world, but I think it's something that, that it's really, truly American. I mean, you couldn't see Spider-Man in Madrid or Spider-Man like hanging and, and fighting crime in Barcelona because the buildings, just the architecture is not there. It's the, the, the size, the size, the scale of the city is not there. So uh, really it was like uh, reading comics not only is um, a window to the fantasy, to the the amazing, to the powers and the people flying and having incredible superpowers, but also a window to other parts of the world that were in the most basic, in the most simple and essential of things, completely different. Mm. Coming from where I come, trying to to buy comics was also kind of an odyssey because not everything came to my town. I knew about a lot of stuff that was extremely popular and, and that, I, that I assumed that I would never get to read. I knew that Frank Miller's Daredevil was kind of the best thing ever, like Electra Assassin, Electra Lives, and I assumed that I was never gonna read it because the Spanish editions were already sold out a, a lot of years before I, I, I even started reading. So how, how in the world I was gonna get, get a copy to read? The libraries in my town didn't have comics. And if they had, they had some things that were popular in Spain and in Europe, like Asterix or Tintin, some things like that, which are extremely good comics. And I loved them as a kid, but Superhero stuff, it was completely out of quest out of the question. That wasn't available. So getting getting my hands into something was kind of was kind of a miracle. Later on when I finished high school and then went to college, uh, I stopped from some time to um, I stopped for like a few years to draw like um comic strips and humoristic stuff, like caricatures and stuff like that. One summer, an alcohol brand hired me to do caricatures of people at parties. As if, if you buy two drinks of our beverage that we are promoting here, this guy in the dark corner over there is gonna draw you a caricature. I spent the whole summer doing that. And let me tell you, that was wild. And I stopped, I stopped doing caricatures back then. It was like, yep. I'm done doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is that I wanted to draw comics for a living, but I thought that it was very not realistic for me for a long time. And I grew up in um, in a family where um, I was always told that if you are a doctor, if you are a lawyer, or if you are an architect, you will have job always. So I was encouraged 
to do, you know, to study something and have a career and then try whatever you wanted to do. But first have your studies and, and have like a backup plan. So I started, I started studying architecture. That is something, that is another thing that kept me from drawing superhero stuff and turning my attention to comic strips, which were much easier and faster to craft. I was studying at the same time, and that was a very time-consuming thing. Uh, but eventually, I dropped the studies. Don't do that, kids. <laughs> it's very important in life to start something and then finish it. Don't do as I did. <laughs> but I did anyway. And I, I reached a point where I, I don't know, I knew that architecture wasn't for me, and I stopped studying architecture. I got a job, a half-time job, and the rest of the of the of the time, um, I started uh, doing sample pages and trying to get more professional and trying to get a job in the industry, and that took me a few years. That was like a wild ride and a story for another occasion because <laughs> I start I started speaking and I can I kind of lose sight of the question that started it all no no it, what, what's really interesting to me is is hearing you talk about all these pieces really like clears the clouds in my brain of trying to uh, of what tucker and i always talk about when we we marvel over your work when you you have a we have a book that you've drawn it's you know i think of the the cartoons that you talked about and how your your characters and your worlds feel so animated and fluid and and loose like a cartoon you talk about the architecture and i think obviously the way you draw buildings the way you like your intense details like it all sort of makes sense now yeah you try and i think i mean for for each person the journey is different for in my case um i've tried many different approaches to comic and illustration throughout my life. And every time I try something, but then I try another thing, I keep details from the, from the approach that I had in the past. I keep things from every single approach that I had in my, in, in my career throughout the years. And I keep indeed things from my Disney years, from my manga years, from my comic strip years, I keep things from Carlos Pacheco, from Stuart Imonen, from George Perez. I wish from Olivier Coipel, from, <laughs> um, I don't know, I, from Pepe Larraz. Uh, I think when you kind of find something that you like, that inspires you, and you try to retain some of that magic for you, even though maybe it doesn't turn out as you want it to be, it always stays something with you, um, even though I I cannot be George Perez, and I I don't want to be George Perez because we have George Perez. He's retired, and he earned that. He's a legend. You already have that work. We need something new. We mm -hmm. and even though I'm not trying to be someone else, I'm not trying to copy anyone. But once you fall in love with a style, with an approach, with an idea, with a concept, with a way to stage a conversation or an action scene, and maybe you try to achieve something and you don't fully get there, but something stays and you build your style and your approach to comics on all the loves that you had in your life. 
I fell in love with George Perez's art. I fell in love with Carlos Pacheco. I fell in love with manga. I'm still in love with manga, with uh, European comics. Doing comics, it's something that, that you do out of love for the characters, for the stories, for the art of storytelling. And each love in your life leaves something behind when you start another love. So my, my career, my approach, my interest, the way I do things, it's a composition of everything that I've, that I've loved and that I love now in the art world. That's beautifully said. Yeah. And in food. <laughs> uh, we don't have time for food here. We do have to get to the book in a little bit. But before we get to that, uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, is something that, again, Tucker and I have talked about a lot, is your work with costumes and fashion, uh, among many things. But that in particular of, you know, you talk about all your different influences and, and how everything coalesces into your particular style. One of the many things that I think really makes you explode off the page is the thought and the care and the the really just cool look that you give everyone. You know, is where did that piece come from? Um, you know, like your characters dress. Like I, I'm always looking at the way the characters in your books are dressing, their fashion. It's just it's it's spectacular. It looks awesome. Where does that come from? What what's that part? First, thank you so much. I mean, uh, <laughs> thank you so much. I need to send you flowers or something. That was really nice. <laughs> the nicest thing anyone has told me in a long time. Uh, that comes, I don't know, from, in the case of Miles Morales, it comes from, um, they need to make things current. I want the people to come to comics to feel that the stories that are set in the present feel like the present. I was very, very worried, for example, coming to Miles Morales, when I did my Miles Morales, a series that I love, that Brooklyn seemed like Brooklyn. It was like essential that Queens looked like Queens and, the, and that 15 year old kids dress like 15 year old kids. And 15-year-old kids from New York don't look the same as 15-year-old people from the south of Spain. So you want to make the best possible version of the comic that you have in your head happen in the page. You want to make it look realistic, make it look um, in fashion what it's happening today, not only in like regular clothes, but for example, when I'm designing a superhero costume, I'm aware that there are trends nowadays. There are ways of designing things, not only in comics, but in video games, for example. I'm very aware the way characters are designed for, I don't know, Overwatch or League of Legends or Fortnite. So you want to make things realistic, in the set, you want to make things uh, trend in the way things are done now. And there's the fear that you are not up to that image that you have in your head of how things should look. That fear makes you push yourself to research more, to question your choices more, to work on the things harder, but also be humble enough to know that 
maybe you need to edit things down to make it work in a comic. When I came to Miles Morales, I knew that Sarah P. Kelly had an amazing approach to how people dressed. So I knew that the bar was already high. I was already aware of all the design work that um, Chris Anka, the artist on Runaways, he is like the best of the best when it comes to designing to designing outfits and costumes. Mm -hmm. So knowing that the bar is high, you want to be as good as them and then make it work for the comic. No, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I would I would put the, the you and the two of them as like when I think of, of fashion in, and looks for characters and building a visual identity around the people in a book, the three of you are, are right there. And that, that feels like the perfect spot to jump into clandestine now. What do you say, Ryan? Let's get into it. It's uh, both written and drawn by Alan Davis, of course, with inks by Mark Farmer and letters by Pat Prentice, uh, colors by Sophie Heath. Um, and uh, I, this was another first time read Same for here. yours truly. Me too. Uh, and what a ride it was. I'm happy that through this wonderful <laughs> occasion, you have discovered clandestine. I oh, yeah. hope you liked it. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely did. I don't know about you, Tucker. What did you think? You know, it's always so interesting to jump into a story with like new characters like this, especially in the Marvel Universe, where you kind of you, you feel like even if you don't know a specific character, you know that maybe they're a mutant or you know that maybe they they came out of a, a previous book where they were a supporting character of one of the Avengers or of Spider-Man or something like that. You, you have a, a, a certain sense of grounding of, okay, I know what corner of the universe we're playing in right now. So this is super interesting to dive directly in and, you know, immediately from like page one, you see Modoc, So, you know, okay, that is a certain grounding influence here. Um, but in another way, it's also not because it's Modoc. That is a certain kind of like, I don't, I don't know if unhinged is the right word, but it's no, very, <laughs> yeah, it's a very <laughs> specific and unusual thing. And I think it can go in a million different directions. You could take Modoc in a really dark, creepy, strange direction. You could take Modoc in a funnier, more self-aware direction. Um, so as I kept flipping through these pages, it's one, it's a visual attack. I mean, it leaps off the page. It is, it's really unique in the way that each page is not, it kind of completely forgoes panel structure in a way. It's, it's all a composed image, you know, top to bottom, every single page in a way that really forgoes like your traditional sense of, of, of what a comic might like this might be. Um, and of course that's the, that's like the mastery at work of Alan Davis there where you can tell you could feel the passion that he had for the story he was telling. So with just those as my guideposts, it was a really, really interesting read to continue to absorb as I was going along. Javier, I want to ask you in a minute why you chose this book. But before you do that, I want to give our listeners a little bit of background um, because we were talking about these eight issues of Clandestine, but the the characters actually appear just a little bit before this in an eight-page story in Marvel Comics Presents, issue number 158, 
it's the family fighting robots and the older members trying to dissuade the twins from being superheroes and it's just alan davis getting to draw giant robots and cool big superhero fights and it's it sort of gives you a taste without delving too much into it but setting the scene for this it's the first issue comes out in august of 1994 so we're you know you know it's way back then um and this is this is like more than 10 years into Alan's comic book career. Well, more than 10 years. Um, he'd been doing tons of stuff in the UK, Captain Britain, uh, amazing work on 2000 AD. There's some great, great stuff he did for 2000 AD. Uh, and of course, Miracle Man, which um, that was like his Miracle Man stuff. You see flashes of it and like, you know, the way he draws certain things in here. Um, and then he gets into the mainstream U.S. comics world with a little DC work and then the Marvel stuff. But he really takes off, of course, in uh, in Marvel U.S. with Excalibur, where he's drawing it alongside Chris Claremont. Then he's writing and drawing Excalibur. And it's like, wow, so good. But there's a gap of a year between Excalibur and Clandestine. And I, I was like doing my research. I was like, Alan Davis is a prolific creator. What was this year? And I realized this year gap is him figuring out clandestine, which is really, really neat. Um, so in the in the afterword to the hardcover collection of clandestine, he says, quote, a number of terrific projects were offered to me. The most appealing and conversely, the most risky was from Paul Neary, then editor in chief of Marvel UK. He asked me to create a new title and granted me absolute creative freedom. It seemed the next logical career move, and I figured my ideas were as good as anyone else's. And from that, like we get clandestine. So he gets full, complete freedom to create everything. And it's it's so cool thinking about it from like from all those angles. A guy, an artist has said, go to town. You can play in the Marvel Universe, but do whatever you want. And we get something like this. It's really, really neat. Um, so back to the question after that long meandering chat, Javier, why did you choose this book for us to talk about today? Well, it's it's well, I love it. Obviously, I think it's it's when I first read it in <clears throat> it was um, something that I, I I've never quite experienced with the Marvel Universe because you discover you you can you you come to you can you can read uh, Spider-Man books you can read X-Men books you can read um Avengers books and this was like diving into another corner of the Marvel universe as Tucker said it starts it starts with Modoc and that's the way i think of Alan Davis uh, the way Alan Davis has to say this is this is the Marvel universe we're going to we're going to discover a lot of things that you didn't know about and a lot of story. There's a, 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 an extremely, um, there's um, extremely rich set of characters uh, and relationships and a whole set of powers involved in this story that you have never seen in any other Marvel comic, but this is still the Marvel universe. And so right out of the gate, it starts with uh, a Marvel villain. I think that, also, Alan Davies is extremely good at drawing like huge monsters and robots and Modok, the way that villain is designed, it's like the, the, the strangest, more 
weird. The most beautiful creation in all of comics. <laughs> Amazing. It's a big face with hands and feet, and it's floating. It's creepy, and it's everything you, you would want from a Marvel big villain monster. So uh, it starts with him, and it says, this is Marvel Universe, and then you start discovering this family, the clandestine, and all the, uh, you start with the, the youngest of the family, which are Rory and Pandora, the twins, and through their eyes, which are the eyes of the reader, you start discovering the rest of the, of the family, the family's history, and that corner of the Marvel Universe and all the powers involved. And also, um, I, didn't, I didn't know that Alan Davis took a whole year to, to think about this and to develop the story. That's an, an extremely interesting um, piece of information, Ryan. That's super interesting because when we talked about doing the, the, the podcast about this, when I, I proposed doing this, and I went again through all the eight Alan Davis issues, but then I said, let's go further and read everything else. There's, um, in 1996, he did an X-Men clandestine miniseries, two issues. Then in 2008, he did another miniseries, five issues. And then in 2012, he did uh, three annuals, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, and Wolverine. And ha after, reading, after reading everything, you can see clearly that from the get-go, he had all planned the, all the way through. He had all the story perfectly planned and he knew what he wanted to, to, to tell, when he wanted to tell, and the way he wanted to tell it. And that's, that's a luxury. So when, when I read Clandestine the first time, I was kind of awestruck by all this. All the story itself, how you you were discovering issue after issue, all the story behind the, the family, the way Alan Davis draws it. The, he has this this way of um, he's so expressive with the faces and the bodies, and um, he's so detailed with the sets too. It's you. It's it's easy for you to really get involved in the story. So, I don't know, I felt like something really unique the first time I, I approached Clandestine. I also, I don't think it's very well known. It's brilliantly written, brilliantly drawn. It's super fun to read. You would go through those eight issues in, in a moment. It's uh, really enjoyable. In and, and I mean, it just checked all the boxes, but clandestine, I think, just went a little bit under the radar, and I think it deserves to be more known. Yeah, that's kind of the, the mental process that I went through to finally recommend this series. No. I'm, I'm glad you did because I remember seeing this on the comic racks when it was coming out as a kid, when I was, you know, I was 13 when this was coming out. So I was going to the store and buying comics. And I remember looking at it being like, well, those guys look cool, but like, I don't want to read a horror book. And so I had this perception in my head because of like the copy on the cover of the first issue. And, you know, you look at Walter and he's this big blue, almost, you know, this monster dude. You're like, I, 
I, I thought it was a horror book until getting into this. And I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought this to us to, to read. It was, it was really fun. I'm, I'm really happy. I, I, I discovered it completely by chance. I mean, I knew Alan Davis from Excalibur, precisely. Uh, I had, there's, there's this issue of Excalibur that I madly love. You know, I have a very soft spot for ridiculous feelings. I mean, I, I, I love them. I, when I was doing Star-Lord, I did, I did a um, seven or eight issue run on Star-Lord with Sam Humphreys. And in the last issue that I did, um, uh, Peter Quill and Kitty Pride. At that moment, they were a couple, well, they were fighting, but then getting back together, but they were trapped by the collector and they were in this um, space jail with the rest of the items that the collector had. And at one point they, they break free. So all the cages um, are destroyed and every, everything that was trapped in those cages gets released. So the, the writer, Sam Humphreys said, just go wild. And I said, wait, what? <laughs> you, you really want to do that? Yeah, 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 just go wild. Just draw, you, you keep in mind, you need to put the collector, you need to put Kitty Pride and Peter Quill, but the rest is up to you because this is just a couple, a couple pages thing. There's not going to be more, it's not going to be more important. So just put references and go wild with it. And I said, well, I take your word. So I started digging. And I find uh, there's there's this this I, I digress a lot, but <laughs> just, the thing is I found just this this is out of curiosity. There's a villain that his power is to turn himself into a chair. <laughs> so he has this oh, yeah. this this purple suit and a top hat, and when he's in danger or wants to, you know blending he turns himself into a chair but the chair is purple the chair has a top hat and the chair has a tie it's the most absurd ridiculous thing ever so what i was saying about excalibur i knew a friend i borrowed from a friend some excalibur issues it was drawn by alan davis i don't know if he's it was written by chris claremont or alan davis and they were fighting technet the villains of Technet, and there's, uh, um, I don't remember the name of the, of the villains, but they tried to uh, to destroy Excalibur with a, a little bomb that was designed as, an, as a hard-boiled egg, and it was <laughs> called Hard-Boiled Henry, and it was <laughs> a hard-boiled egg that talked like this, I'm gonna destroy you. <laughs> Excalibur just woke up, the, the members of the team just woke up and they were having breakfast and suddenly, I don't know, Nightcrawler wants to, to eat uh, the hard-boiled egg and then the, the hard-boiled egg uh, starts complaining, hey, you're trying to crack my, my whatever it's called, <laughs> and, and then everybody starts to freak out and then the hard-boiled egg comes up with two eyes and he has a little clock in its forehead, which is the timer of the bomb that it is. And it's completely absurd, and it's a hard-boiled, hard-boiled Henry. I'm gonna destroy <laughs> you, Calibut. And I loved it. So I knew Alan Davis. I knew, and I loved his work. And as I said, 
we didn't receive much comics back then. So when I went to the store, I was intrigued, as Ryan said, when I, when I saw the covers, it looked like something more horror-oriented, more horror-like. Sometimes the covers can portray a mood that it's not maybe the mood that you find inside the comic, but it definitely caught your attention and it definitely caught mine. So uh, I remember that I arrived at the store and there weren't new comics, but this one, clandestine, and I knew Alan Davis from Excalibur and I decided to give it a try. And here we are, like 20 years later, talking about it in a Marvel podcast. Here's the, here's the thing, Javier. I, I You flashed us your notes that you were taking when you uh, were going back and rereading these issues of Clandestine. I don't want to lose that. I don't want that to have been done in vain. Um, do you want to, uh, do you want to start taking us through, um, you know, some of the highlights from your yeah, notes? Lead, and... lead us through with some of your, yeah, yeah, that's a perfect idea, Tucker. Um, cause normally we go through issue by issue, but I, we've talked so much about all these, you know, different things. I would love to, as Tucker mentions, like, what are the things that jumped out for you for many of these issues that you, you want to talk about? Um, so yeah, I started taking notes and, um, there are different kinds of notes that I, that I was taking this morning. On one hand, we have the, the story points. I mean, it's, it's the way that Alan Davis drops information in a certain way. I mean, we have Modoc and uh, one of the villains of the story, which is called Lens. We have him on issue one, and he doesn't come up till issue three. The way he um, starts, like dropping information from one point to another. The first arc of the of the story, it's only of the eight issues, is four issues, but the way those four issues blend into the next arc, we have a issue five, which is like an interlude, and then we have a, a two-issue arc, six and seven, and the way he sets things and then picks up what he set up and builds the story. And so, one part of the notes are story-wise in that sense. Um, about there's there's this thing in the story, the 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 members of the of the clandestine family they are a family and they have some protocols that avoid them to be discovered by the rest of the world because they live longer than usual people. They live to up to the the, the longest the the longest uh, living member of the family. I think it's. K. Sira, in that it's 800 years old. Yeah, she's 800. The, the, you're talking about the relative strangers protocol, which is such a cool idea. It's, it's, a, it's a, a really neat idea. But in one moment that we, we, we know about that protocol in issue two, but in issue, I think it was like four or five, we get a proper description of it. And it's like an elaborate system of counterfeit name names and identities and it was designed by newton you know which is another member of the family so i also kept um like a a, a diagram of the different members of the family when they when they die if they die uh, sometimes some kind of feature that they have the different names that they have because we have for example we have this this character one of the members of the family is called maurice and Maurice, Maurice is not 
Maurice Destein. The, the rest of the family is called, we have Rory, and he's Rory Destein. We have Walter, and we have, and he's Walter Destein. But Maurice is not Maurice Destein. He is Maurice Fortuit. Fortuit in French is chance. But we also have Samantha, which is another member of the family. Her, her second name is Hazard, which in French also means chance, random, fortuitous. So we have like several members of the family when they take another name that is not this time because they don't want to be linked to the rest of the family just to keep everybody safe. Uh, they take the same second name, but in other languages. Instead of this time, which is the destiny, your destiny, your destiny is like the way that has been already set for you to follow. Yeah. So when they're trying to seem like they are not from the family, when they, they assume another name, they assume the opposite name. They are not destiny. They are not destined. They are random chance for teachers. Uh, you know, Javier, one of the things that you, you, you talked about from your notes is something that I found really interesting in my read of this is the beauty and sort of the tragedy of the this book as a as as a product is that Alan had these amazing deep ideas. You could tell that, as you were saying, he's thought about so many pieces of this and we have so many threads that sort of you know issue one gives you a couple things issue two gives you a couple things and you you we get all these different subplots and stories um the tragedy of it is he only does these eight issues right away and we don't really get to see the fruition of his world being built and of course you mentioned there's you know another 10 or so issues that we can read out there but um i i was immediately hooked by like wait so what happens to Lens? What what happens to Griffin after this story? Where like those pieces, I you know, you imagine he had ten issues, twenty issues, thirty issues planned out in his head, and he only did eight. What could have been is sort of like the only sad part of this to me. It's mm-hmm. such an Alan Davis baby. It's his vision. It's his creature. He has it all really planned. It's I don't know the, the the essence the 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 concept is completely Alan Davis. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up uh, this conversation soon. Uh, I do want to make sure that we remind people we are talking about uh, clandestine, uh, which is is so good <laughs> and it is fantastic. And, and honestly. Javier, what you were talking about, what you brought up, Tucker, like about these these conversation points does lead into all this, all that Alan Davis was putting into his work in Clandestine, because I think he was he's had many peaks. I don't know if one is greater than the other, but you can see some of the greatest work he's done in these pages in Clandestine. And it's a book about family and it's a book about sort of identity and and trust and love and betrayal and secrets and all kinds of really cool things it is a very marvel book um and so if anybody any of our listeners out there 
has not given this a shot yet i really really suggest it it is um it is great it is really great comic books yeah it's it's really incredible and also the thing is we were talking that um these eight issues feel like many things are said but not answered but the thing is that in the next clandestine things that alan davis did maybe not in the x-men clandestine thing which is just extremely fun and super spectacular and i totally recommend it but in the second miniseries that he did in 2008 and in the three annuals that he did in 2012 the fantastic four daredevil and wolverine one he still kind of finished things he answers stuff and it all becomes a long story that he started in 1994 and if he doesn't do anything more clandestine related in the rest of his career we can say that with those annuals in 2012 the story kind of feels very cohesive and the main core of elements gets completely resolved it feels like something really special and it's a journey that everybody everybody that loves comics and loves alan davis I definitely should go through. Well said. Javier, I can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely incredible. Um, truly, what a guest. What a pleasure to speak to about comics, about any damn thing. <laughs> I, I, I digress a lot. Sorry if I missed <laughs> no, the no. point several times. No, and my stop there. My even worse. But stop there. I'm stop there. Really it was incredible. I'm talking with you guys. I'm, I was really excited when you guys... Uh, invited me to be here with you. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you so much, Tucker. Thank you so much, Jorge. It's been a. Bl- I, I can. I had. I don't have enough words to thank you guys for for this moment. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining me in the love for clandestine and for Alan Davis. That should be always celebrated. Thank you once more to Mr. Javier Garon. He is the dang best. And you know what? As we were talking with Javier, as we were talking last week with Russell Dodderman, I've been revisiting that 2014 Cyclops series a few times over, and I looked into it, and I was looking through the credits of that book. Three artists on there were doing their earliest Marvel work. Javier Garon, Russell Dodderman, and Carmen Carnero all did some of their first Marvel work with Cyclops 2014. Incredible. What an amazing little droplet, little seed that sprouts into like three of the most incredible artists literally working in comics today. Shout out Nick Lowe. Way to go. Way to go. Everybody that worked on that Cyclops book. I thought that was awesome. That's really great. Uh, You should do a feature on that. Like Cyclops. I was thinking about this. Yeah. The 2014 Cyclops book was, you know, one of the most important artistic books of (laughs) the decade. Uh, yeah. I think you could totally do that. That wraps it up for this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by me, Ryan Pagos, along with Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, and MR Daniel. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio, and our audio development manager is Brad Barton, who is the forgotten member of Clandestine. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Mark. Your universe.